Welcome to the Right Brain Music Podcast, presented by Right Brain Records. I'm Scott, and I thank you for joining us. Today, we are pleased to welcome prolific composer and pianist Wayne Horvitz. Wayne is one of those people whose biography is far too long to fully capture in an introduction. I'll mention a few highlights. He was prominent in the New York downtown music scene in the 1980s and 90s, and his career accelerated from there. His work defies easy labels, ranging from classical to jazz to experimental both acoustic and electronic, and often drawing on American roots. Wayne has performed and collaborated with many, including John Zorn, Bill Frisell, Fred Frith, Julian Priester, Carla Blay, and Wayne's wife, Robin Holcomb. He's toured the world, composed for theater, dance, movies, and TV, and his work has been performed by a long list of ensembles, large and small. He's also a composition professor and a producer for other artists. On top of all that, he's dedicated to building community around music. As an example, he's the programmer for The Royal Room, a revered venue in Seattle. Wayne recently performed a spellbinding solo set on piano and electronics in a concert hosted by Right Brain Records. We started talking there and this episode continues the conversation. Here, we will listen to a bunch of Wayne's recorded music and get to know him a bit. I started off with a question. How would you describe your role in music? Once somebody in a job interview, and I, I'd like to note I didn't get the job, uh, said, what's a composer? How do you define a composer? And I said, well, it's someone who tells other people what to do. But I think in my actual work, that's a really interesting thing, because I think some people are composers, and mostly what they do is they bring their music to other people. And then some people are improvisers, and they don't ever touch that, and then there's all the things in between. I think that a lot of people work within those boundaries being more formal sometimes and less formal other times. But I think that I'm a relatively extreme version of that in that I go all the way to completely notated music, quite a bit of completely notated music where there's really no room for anything but the sort of classical idea of interpretation, all the way to completely free improvised music and lots of music that I make where I sort of use elements of all those things sort of simultaneously. So my role really changes from time to time. It changes, even within a gig, it changes. 
but certainly over the course of what I do. I guess the other question is, how do you define composition in a more serious way than just it's telling people what to do? And so if you want to claim that you're with two other people and you're doing completely open improvisation, and that that in, is in and of itself a way to compose, I agree with that. I think that is a way to compose. So I'm happy to call myself, first and foremost, a composer. strongly about this, I think the contrast between improvisation the moment and composition is far less than a lot of people, other people seem to think. And I have pretty strong experience with, I mean, I'm old enough now that I was around in the 70s and 80s with a lot of the discussions about free improvisation, a term I don't really like. I, I like how you put it, open improvisation better, but open improvisation was kind of this radical departure and I do think that there are different things that happen depending on what technical approach you have to the music. So when you use pencil and paper, certain things are going to happen that wouldn't happen in an open improvisation and vice versa. And they all have value. But honestly, how many pieces have I written that came, that came from something I sat down at the piano and just played and I said, oh, I like that, you know, and I decided to codify it, right? And then, of course, myself and a million other people that I've worked with and a million other people also sometimes use slightly structured music as a springboard for things. You can go all the way to things like jazz where you improvise on a form, but you can also do things where you say, I mean, I think the Art Ensemble of Chicago was, was a great example, you know. I, I realized listening to them that they had pieces where 
they had a theme that they were headed towards, but nothing else was structured. So they're completely improvising, but in their minds, there's something compelling about the fact that they're going to this certain place. So there's so many, what's the word? I would say strategies. To me, the strategy is, man, sometimes a drum machine is the best way for me to work to get an idea. Sometimes the computer is the best idea. Sometimes getting together with friends is the best idea. Sometimes you you want to write something for somebody because you want a certain thing, and you realize writing it is useless. It's easier to get a someone who's a great improviser to come in and kind of fill a role. And then other times you sit back with people and play without any preconceptions. I don't think they're that different. Everybody makes their choice about what language they want to use and what they don't use, you know. Matt Mitchell, I just heard the other night, he's just one of my absolute new heroes. I love his playing so much. He's such a great pianist. And I just know Matt would never use any blues language, and I do, you know. I mean, he's just going to avoid that because, and that's his, his choice. For me, it's pretty simple how that happened. In the first place, I started really late very late. I didn't really even get serious about practicing until I was in college. I played piano a little bit. I played in blues bands. I love blues piano. I listened to Otis Spann and the Muddy Waters Band and Helen Wolf and all this stuff just constantly. I also loved psychedelic music, which really brought me into more open forms because I think that the, the very early Grateful Dead and certainly the early Jefferson Airplane and Hendrix and, and stuff, but that led me right to Electric Miles Davis. There's a lot of pentatonic language going on there, but there's a lot of polytonal language going on there.
was getting really interested in Stravinsky and Bartok, well, Bartok particularly. And I started thinking about music in a kind of high art way. You know, I wanted to make something that wasn't just being in bands. I also got really attracted to people like Cecil Taylor and the Art Ensemble Chicago. But I always felt like there's a certain feeling I get from Otis Spam, particularly his, this, his solo piano recordings, that, you know, I never wanted to leave behind. And I found, I started finding ways to combine blues language with diff, different harmonies that reminded me a little bit of some kind of Americanized version of Bartok. And those Bartok, particularly, I, I was such a late starter that I was playing the microcosmos, the, the piano books that are really for beginning and intermediates. I was playing them not when I was seven, like I should have been, but when I was 18. But because of that, I think I had a more left brain approach to the Bartok than I would have if I was seven, in that I thought, oh, wow, he's playing in two different keys here. I mean, I, I wasn't a very good pianist, but I understood it from a theoretical point of view. And so I started thinking about how blues language is, is, is similar to that. And it just all started to help me find a voice. Cecil Taylor was such an important influence, but it was the art ensemble that allowed me to be me. The art ensemble, somehow they brought in these disparate elements that, that allowed me to find that in my own music. It's really hard to talk about the 60s because, of course, no young person wants to hear you talk about the 60s. I'm sorry. 
shit was happening. I mean, it was fantastic, you know, and it was happening on all sorts of different levels. I mean, stuff that was happening in jazz at that time, whether it's the late 50s with Ornette and Cecil Taylor into the AACM and all that stuff was so prophetic. The stuff that was happening in popular music was so prophetic. I mean, you know, my, I mean, you know, I love Frank Sinatra, but that was not the seismic shift that the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and, and, and it was a seismic shift. And some of it had to do with Elvis basically, you know, colonizing black music, but it also had to do with other things. I mean, there was so much experimentalism that was affecting that music. And also it's funny because when I worked with Zorn and suddenly we were doing Naked City and suddenly there was all this cross genre stuff, you know, whoa, they're doing a crazy jazz tune and now they're doing this, this, this thing. And I thought, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, this is a great band and I think it's fantastic, but, but Jim Queskin and the Jug Band was doing that. I mean, I mean, not only were the Grateful Dead doing that, where they would take, you know, they'd have a blues song, but Jim Queskin would have like, you know, a Fats Waller tune next to a Mississippi John Hurt tune next to, and then of course, radio stations. I mean, radio stations had an open format. I would go into my older brothers, I, I was very lucky, I was 12 years old, 1967, I had two older brothers, one was a senior in high school and one was in college. That brother actually ended up living in the Haight-Ashbury in 1967. They both took me to the film where to hear bands play. I would go into their room and the Yehudi Anuin record with Ravi Shankar would be next to the West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band, which is a band no one remembers except maybe a few people our age. Next to Hendrix, next to Moby Gray, Quicksilver Messenger Service. I mean, those bands were all huge influences on me. And of course, it led me right into Electric Miles Davis, and it didn't seem that different to me. And then there's the whole thing about structure and lyrics and breaking that open. I mean, I, I always use Sly and the Family Stone as just being this exemplar of reinventing structure, reinventing the ways lyrics, I mean, obviously Dylan changed lyrics in so many ways, but Sly also changed the relationships of lyrics to, to music, you know, in this way that was just opened up so much stuff. And yeah, it was a reason Miles Davis worked with Sly Stone because he was a genius. <laughs> I'm forever grateful to have come up at that time. Portland water, it's willing wills the body, but not the soul. Oh, they called up from Portland on the public telephone, and they say it sure is raining here in the state of Oregon. Up in the canyon, looking down at the river, and the wind comes blowing, and it makes me shiver. Oh, they called up from Portland on the public telephone. And they say it sure is raining here in the state of Oregon. Indians standing down by the water. Well, they say that the river 
Tanya Leone asked me that like 35 years ago at, at a radio program. Oh, I hear your music. You know, are, are you influenced by the minimalist composer? And my, my answer is no, but I'm influenced by the people who influenced the minimalist composer. Speaking of Sly and the Family Stone, speaking of James Brown, you know, speaking of gamelan music, speaking of, of, of African music, you know, all those things use repetition and riffs. Now, the use of space, I mean, again, that was something that after being so infatuated with Cecil Taylor, that the art ensemble really led me to, and I, I realized I was always attracted to that. I tend to like things that aren't just sort of over the top. Now, there's also the fact that I'm not a virtuoso. There's no, there's no arguing with that. I did start late. So I have to also find things that fit my technical ability. But I think that's been a curse in some ways, but I also think it's been a blessing. Talking to Bill Frizzell years and years ago, he said, well, you know, I wanted to play like John McLaughlin. I knew I never would. I, I could never play that fast, so I found something else. I often see pianists particularly who have crazy chops and play tons of notes. And I often say, you know, I wish I had those chops so I could choose not to play that way. <laughs> but I still wouldn't mind having the chops.
So can you comment on that role of being a facilitator and partner to musicians? Yeah, so the kind of curatorial side of things or just creating community side of things. I mean, I think some people are just wired that way, and I am, you know, I'm very social. I walked in the Knitting Factory years ago to play a what was a gig I can't even explain what it was because it was just I thought I was playing a gig in a restaurant and then I turned to the guy who ran it I said why don't you let me host a series for eight weeks and um, soon it became kind of a place that became what it became and I don't deserve a ton of credit for that but I deserve a little bit of it. I mean I said let's do a duo thing with Butch Morris and Fred Fred all people he'd never heard of let's do something with with Bill Fazell and Robin Holcomb let's do something with Anthony Cox and, and, and Marty Ehrlich I have this side of me that actually I'm trying to get rid of because it takes up a lot of my time, which is, you know, I'm trying to do less of that, but I'm, I'm pretty ensconced at the moment. It's great, and a lot of great things have come out of that, but I also have to remember to leave time for myself, you know, my own work. But I do. The real simple answer to your question is I basically like people, for better or for worse. And it's one of the reasons I like music. I read more than I listen to music. I mean, I love to read. But the idea of being an author and being in a, a situation where you have no social contact in your work is just so foreign to me. And, and I love to collaborate. Robin Holcomb just put out a, a record after 10 years and it's all songs and I've been working really hard on that. I've been practicing a lot. I got some performances coming up with Sarah Schoenbeck. Sarah's the bassoon player I put my last record out with. That's hard music so I always got to keep my, my chops together. 
I did an orchestra piece that Bill Frisell was the soloist on, and I've done a couple of string quartets that have had improvising soloists. Ron Miles is a great cornet and trumpet player who passed earlier this year, who I'd worked with a lot and who I loved dearly. Before Ron died, I thought, I'm going to do one more piece for basically classical ensemble plus improvising solo, since it could be with Ron. And now what I'm just starting to dream of is a piece for chamber orchestra and have six, eight, ten different trumpet players play on each movement. So short movements, like three to five minutes each. So that's my only sort of dream project on the horizon. I'm going to Europe in the winter and I'm going to try to do Sweden in the Day, which is a long-standing ensemble of mine, but with local musicians. So I have a Dutch version I just rehearsed with a couple of weeks ago and an Italian version. So that could be a lot of fun. listening to the thoughts and music of Wayne Horvitz. It's rather mind-boggling that all this was composed by the same person, and we've only scratched the surface of his life's work to date. He clearly has a lot more in the tank, so stay tuned. You can find links to Wayne's bio and discography, as well as today's playlist, in the blog article for this episode. The address is rightbrainrecords.com slash blog. We'll close with a song from Robin Holcomb's new album, One Way or Another, produced by Wayne Horvitz. Talk to me with
whispering in my ears All those sweet things I long to hear I've got that feeling stealing through my heart again been listening to the Right Brain Music Podcast, presented by Right Brain Records. You can visit us at rightbrainrecords.com. Farewell for now. Join us next time.